Mark Twain was born Samuel Langhorn Clemens in 1835 and grew up in Hannibal, Missouri, on the banks of the Mississippi River. He was an iconic American author, humorist, and social critic, and he left an indelible mark on American literature. Some of Mark Twain's most famous works, including The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, have become timeless classics. They captivated readers of all ages with their unforgettable characters and engaging narratives. And some of his work remains controversial to this day. Joining us now to talk about the life of Mark Twain is Matthew Siebold, a professor of American literature at Elmira College in upstate New York. Dr. Siebold is also the scholar in residence at the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. I wanted to start with a broad question about Mark Twain's work. What was his role in the development of American literature and American history? Well, that's a very big question, and I would say that there are a number of different ways to answer it. But for me, I think maybe the most important way to think about the place that Twain holds in our national consciousness is as perhaps, if not our first, certainly a groundbreaking cultural celebrity that Twain came of age as mass media was exploding in the United States in the middle of the 19th century. And he was one of the first figures to ride that technological revolution to a audience that was not just national, but indeed global. And there are a few other figures that we could compare him to, people like Sarah Bernhardt, uh, maybe Buffalo Bill. Uh, but he's certainly the first literary figure who achieves, coming out of the United States at least, achieves that kind of global celebrity. And I think that's one reason why he remains such a beloved but also sometimes contested figure into the present day is that it's hard to imagine somebody holding the the national imagination in quite the way that he did for for decades. Uh, And Robertus Love, the poet who wrote one of the obituaries for him in 1910, said, and I think the case could certainly be made, that he was the most famous man on earth at that moment. And he was certainly the first American to achieve that kind of status. Mark Twain's life story, of course, begins in Missouri. Tell us about his early years there, his family, his upbringing, education. Yeah, so, I mean, he he grew up in, he was born in Florida, Missouri, grew up in Hannibal, Missouri, uh, along the Mississippi River. And obviously, he based several works, most notably Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, on that town. And it was in many ways a typical antebellum border south municipality. There were, uh, there, there was much evidence of the influence of enslavement. There was certainly much evidence of the influence of the plantation economy. But in Mississippi River Valley, Missouri, Twain would not have been 
looking at the worst versions of enslavement on a daily basis, the way somebody who lived in Louisiana or Alabama or Mississippi might have. And, but he was he was deeply indoctrinated, as he would later describe, right, in the specifics of being a Southern gentleman and of protecting the slave society and the slave economy. And so certainly that's one important element of thinking about what Twain had to unlearn in the decades after he left Missouri. And he, he rarely returned after he skedaddled in 1861. What would he have been like, Mark Twain, as a child before his working years, let's say, as a child? How would you describe him? And he, did he aspire to be something in particular, like a writer? <laughs> Well, so, I mean, certainly the the only thing that he ever revealed as having aspired to be is a steamboat pilot. Right? Uh, and as he describes in Life on the Mississippi, he considered it and his friends and uh, fellow school children considered it the, the greatest possible aspiration that he, he thinks of this as as an incredibly commanding post and of an, an incredibly exciting potential career and he achieves that career or at least this is the way he tells the story and assumes that that's what he will be doing for the rest of his life and, and it's only the outbreak of civil war that prevents that from being the case or at least that's how he likes to tell the story and so we don't have a whole lot of evidence of Twain aspiring to be a literary figure, but aspiring to be a writer, aspiring to be a lecturer, aspiring to be even a journalist, until his hand is forced by the war. Although he had picked up some odd jobs as a printer's apprentice, as a uh, as a columnist, right, that he, he had at least the way that he tells the story, and, and I think that in this case I, I largely believe him, you know, there was a period in his teenage years where he was involved in the printing trade by necessity because it was convenient, because he had something of an acumen for it, but he had very little passion for it. And it only develops that passion after he goes west, after he's driven out of the trade which he actually adores, which is the steamboat pilot trade. Back to the work as a steamboat pilot, uh, how did that inform and influence his later work as a writer? Yeah, it's a, I mean, that's a fascinating question. And, I mean, certainly there is, we, we could make all sorts of speculations about how the, the rumination and also the memorization that was associated with learning the somewhat tedious but also incredibly urgent trade of piloting, how that might have helped him develop some habits of mind that would serve him well in his later career. Um, but it, I think maybe most directly gives him an intimate knowledge of a particular place at a particular moment in time. 
And he's going to return to that place and that moment in time over and over and over again to tell a number of different stories. Um, But he's able to bring the Mississippi River environment to life in a way few other writers have been able to uh, have been able to sort of put us in and habituate us to a particular place and he he claims that you can only write what you know now he claims that despite the fact that he also wrote stories about uh you know medieval england <laughs> uh and uh, you know science fiction tales and you know he certainly wrote plenty of things that took us to places that he had never been um but the things that he has been most canonized for certainly were associated with both the place and the time that he spent on the Mississippi River. And so clearly that's the most direct way to think about what that trade gave to him. On his uh, writing style, Dr. Siebold, uh, Mark Twain's writing style, Mm -hmm. um, what kind of formal education did Mark Twain have and where did he actually learn to write? Was it something that came natural to him ultimately? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think there, you know, it would be hard for me to, to claim that he didn't have some natural talent or at least some considerable intelligence that made his relative lack of formal education less of a hindrance than it would be for many of his peers. But he, as you know, I think that the most common argument, and I think a very compelling one, is that he really learned to write by being a printer's apprentice, by putting his hands on the type. This is uh, Ron Powers makes this argument very eloquently and vividly. Right, that he, as a as a printer's apprentice, he was setting type, a very tedious job. But in the tedium of that job, he was also familiarizing himself with grammar, with spelling, uh, with diction, uh, with the the play of words, and in a very sort of tangible, material way. And although while he was doing that, we have very little evidence he was self-consciously training himself, it stuck with him. And when he once again was put in a position where he had to call upon those talents, that is when he went west, he was able to utilize them. And it's only at that point where he recognizes this may be a vocation that can at least keep me well fed while I'm in the West and and may eventually be able to bring me a kind of fame. While uh, Mark Twain was coming of age, the country, of course, was going through a very difficult and painful time. You alluded to uh, his views on slavery. What were his views on the Civil War, and did he actually fight in the war? <laughs> it, it, so this is, I, I think this is a, an excellent question. And the the short answer I would give is, is, as a combatant, no. As an enlisted man, no. Now, he writes a story called A Private History of a Campaign That Failed, which is about uh, briefly traveling with an upstart militia in the early days of 1861 
and being impressed, having it impressed upon him in various ways that he was not made for this conflict. And, uh, and, and that's one of the things that inspires him to go west. But that is a work of fiction as much as it is a work of memoir, probably more so. And what little actual evidence we have suggests that the closest he came to combat was as a pilot, that he was uh, working the Mississippi River, and one of the first sort of strategic goals of the Union Army was to take and control that route, uh, a trade route, and he was conscripted for a time as a pilot on a Union gunboat and saw in the very, very, very early stages the potential for military technology, and he he was traumatized by it. And some of his family members would describe him returning to St. Louis having um, having kind of stowed away to avoid being further conscripted into the war and returning to St. Louis as somebody different from who he had been when he left and um, being uh, being very afraid of uh, officers coming to look for him and, uh, and spending the rest of the war, as he put it, with a pistol held to his head while he piloted the Mississippi River. And he, uh, you know, the, 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 this, this I, I think, explains both why he went west and also gives us a little sense that he, he saw how traumatizing the war was going to be before most of his countrymen did. And I think that left a very lasting impression on him and, and on his work, even though he very rarely actually depicted any elements of the war. So it was 1861 after the war that he went west with his brother, as you uh, have pointed out. So Mark Twain is in his mid-20s now, I guess. Um, I have heard the term adventures, adventures uh, applied to this period of his life. What else did he take part in when he was in the western part of the country? What was he known for as he was coming up? And then what ultimately uh, made him move back to the eastern U.S.? Yeah, oh, so, you know, he he went west as, uh, as he put it, a secretary to a secretary, that his brother was given a relatively limited federal position in the Nevada Territory, and he was going to be his assistant. And it didn't come with any salary, <laughs> but it came with the opportunity to escape. And that's why he, he goes west in the first place. And he he tries his hand at, at a number of things, um, you know, and may, he, in the memoir Roughing It, uh, he pokes fun of at himself for being a, a very poor miner and prospector and eventually realizes that what he can do is write and editor, edit, and he becomes editor of a, a small newspaper uh, in Virginia City uh, in Nevada. And he begins writing satirical uh, reports from 
the Comcast load or the Comstack load, and uh, some of those get picked up and syndicated in other regional newspapers, especially those coming out of San Francisco, uh, because they're you know, they're not only uh, humorous and witty, but they also capture something of the romance of the the gold rush. And uh, and eventually he decides to actually move to the big city when it moves to, to San Francisco. Uh, and he, he has a number of, of different jobs uh, as a beat reporter, uh, as a freelance writer. Uh, and eventually he tries out lecturing in that capacity. And I think the, the thing for me that I think, you know, there's a number of things that obviously he learns from this experience, but one of the ones that has stood out for me in my research is that he was part of a, uh, not just part of, he was at the center of a conflict between the Chinese immigrant community of San Francisco and the San Francisco police department. And uh, he was threatened. He was arrested. He was beat up. He was. Uh, he had his, the proceeds of his lectures confiscated. He, uh, but he, he just kept writing about the corruption of, of the police in San Francisco, and by doing so, he actually was able to at least participate in, if not inspire, a reform movement. And out of that, he starts to realize that not only is writing potentially a way for him to make a living, he wasn't making a very good living in it uh, or a very good living with it. But in addition to just simply being something that can uh, keep him occupied and can keep him uh, in beer money, it's something that can actually change the society in which he lives. And I think that's the, for me, that's really the, the moment where Samuel Clemens starts to imagine the possibility of a mass cultural liber- literary celebrity in the United States. Wanted to ask you more, Doctor, about uh, Mark Twain's uh, private life, particularly how he met his wife, uh, Olivia, and what their life was like together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is obviously very important to me since uh, I work at Livy's alma mater, Elmira College, the first institution to grant degrees to women in the United States. And uh, as her attendance to a, at a place like that and her family's actually involved in the founding of Elmira College suggests she was a kind of first wave feminist. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But she she gets to know Samuel Clemens through her brother. Uh, Her younger brother goes on the first pleasure cruise from New York to uh, it was called the Holy Land Excursion. Uh, But it went to Europe and the Middle East, uh, finishing its voyage in Jerusalem. And uh, it was one of the first such endeavors, at least to take off from the U.S. And uh, Twain, that is Sam Clemens, was also on board. And he was there because he wanted to cover the voyage for a couple of different newspapers. And he sent dispatches back from uh, the Quaker City, that is the 
the cruise ship. And uh, he befriended Charlie Langdon, that is Libby's younger brother. And while they were aboard, he, he caught a glimpse of what I think we can describe as a locket, a picture in a locket of his sister. And at least as he would later tell the story, he fell in love at first sight. And, and uh, he made an effort to stay in touch with Charlie once they returned to the United States. And eventually he gets a chaperone first date uh, and they go to see the uh, uh, they go to see Charles Dickens read in New York City. Uh, I think it's Steinway Hall on New Year's Eve. And he's overwhelmed even in his review of dickens's performance he even makes allusion to the beautiful woman that was in his company but it takes quite some time for him to both persuade her (laughs) and to persuade her parents that this is a good match Uh, and he does so over a series of love letters as well as a series of visits to elmira new york where they resided uh, and where I'm residing at the moment. Uh, and uh, this, the, the sort of turning point comes in Thanksgiving, uh, during a Thanksgiving visit, when she finally agrees to marry him. But he has to get first the permission of her parents. And also, he's, he's, a tour, he's essentially a touring stand-up comic at this point. And she also begins to realize that this is somebody who's been itinerant for decades and who has never really had a stable residence, much less a home, since he left his childhood home. And this is something that she becomes somewhat fearful of. And so that's sort of the beginning of Twain's conversion to a bourgeois lifestyle on the one hand, but also his integration into the community of Elmira, New York, because he makes the promise to Livy that she will never be gone from this place for very long. And once they marry in 1870, they begin the practice of coming to Elmira and specifically to um, Livy's sister-in-law, Susan Crane's farm, uh, for 25 years, every summer for three to four months, for 25 years, they return to Quarry Farm. And that's where Twain composes the majority of Roughing It, of Adventures of Tom Sawyer, of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, of Life on the Mississippi, of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Prince and the Pauper, so on and so forth. Right? This is uh, you know, the vast majority of works that you might have heard of were composed here. Is that, and I was yeah. going to ask, is that the point in his life where he reached uh, his his the height of his fame? It's a it's a very good very good question and the I mean the short answer is no. <laughs> the trajectory is uneven and the most popular the best selling book that he would ever write would be The Innocence Abroad, which is about the Quaker City Holy Land excursion. And certainly he was 
uh, he achieved a kind of literary celebrity that was unprecedented in those late years of the 1860s, early years of 1870s. And that's when he uh, builds the home in Hartford, uh, the, the lavish home. If you've ever been there, I, I highly recommend it. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and, uh, and he's certainly achieving a, a level of wealth that will continue to grow in many ways over the next couple of decades until he he actually is bankrupted by the panic of 1894. But I would actually say he's more famous in the last 10 years of his life. Right? That you know, the, the, the Twain is a, a, is a celebrity for almost the entire period from 1865, essentially, until 1910. But he's never more famous than he is after the global lecture tour and during that final decade of his life. What do you think it would have been like to meet him, to be in a room with him, spend some time with Mark Twain? (laughs) I think it would have depended on the day and depended on the environment. It's very clear from reading the memoirs and uh, private writings of some of his peers, that this was somebody who could be incredibly charismatic, right? was, a, was a much desired guest at parties, um, at banquets, uh, and not just because he was a, a famous name and a famous face, but also because there was the likelihood that he would make it more fun. Right? He had that tremendous sense of humor, uh, that quick wit, that uh, very singular delivery. And so it's un- undeniable that at his most charismatic, there were few people more enjoyable to be around than Mark Twain. And, but he also suffered a great deal and I think had an incredibly hard life and and an incredibly um, tortured temperament and a number of different traumas that started in his very early youth. And he could go into very dark periods. Uh, And so I think it's undoubtedly true that the people that lived with him and were closest with him also knew a side of Sam Clemens that was not particularly fun to be around and that could be uh, could be angry, but even more so, I think, could be morbid. This is this is somebody who who did not have a lot of faith in mankind in in his darkest moments, at least and was prone to take that out on those that were closest to him. You mentioned the uh, bankruptcy that he went through. Uh, I was reading that he was able to dig himself out of that situation. Mm -hmm. Did he wind up paying back all of his creditors? And I thought I read that uh, the money came from that worldwide tour, correct? Yeah, that's that's, that's primarily the case, yeah. Now, he, he did have a little help. And I think that in the the biggest way, Henry Rogers, who he would describe as his best friend during the final 20 years of his life, 
was a vice president of Standard Oil and a major magnate of the era who took over the management of Twain's finances uh, during and after the bankruptcy and certainly helped to make sure that he would be on firm footing. But absolutely, uh, you know, he he made the choice. It was not dictated to him by the court. Right? He made the choice that he wanted to repay every cent of his debts. And the way in which he uh, managed to do that was primarily through that global lecture tour, as well as a uh, travel journal based upon it called Following the Equator. Uh and then he also retained his the copyrights to his previous works. And there's a there's a kind of new fervor and demand for Twain's writings in the 1890s and 1900s, late 1890s and 1900s. And so he's actually able to accumulate by the time of his death a bigger fortune than he had prior to the bankruptcy of his publishing house. Um, and and yeah, I think there's yeah he has some he has some help in that. He would be the first to to say that. But I also think we underestimate the deftness of Twain's entrepreneurial instincts. Um, he really understood mass media about as well as anybody from his era or from his generation, and he was frequently able to capitalize on that. Uh, now he had some you know. He made some bad choices along the way as well, but I think in the you know in the the vein of the kind of venture capitalist of today, he was somebody who had enough big scores that it overwhelmed the many sort of funny losses that he took on over the course of his career. Final question: We have just and of course a... he left behind he left behind an enormous fortune. Mm-hmm. I was going to say we have just about a minute left. Was there anything in Mark Twain's autobiography that jumped out at you? What was especially revealing to America when it came out? Oh wow! <laughs> the, yeah, the, the tens of thousands of pages. Um, uh, that's an excellent, an excellent question, and I think. There's, you know, there's so many things that helped me understand him as an object for research from those volumes. But, yeah, I, I keep coming back to the way that he conceives of the potential for literature uh, and particularly for realist literature right, that, that sprinkled throughout the the autobiography is his discussion of, of why he writes the way he does and why specific scenes captivate him in the way that they do. And that the idea of bearing witness is something that he returns to over and over again, right? The importance of recognizing when you are seeing something that is on the one hand extraordinary, but on the other hand, universalizing. And one of the first instances he remembers of this is watching a, uh, a Chinese immigrant uh, laundryman get stoned on the streets of San Francisco by some hool- what he describes as hooligans. And 
it was a moment of violence, a moment of racialized violence, uh, but an, a moment that also contained all sorts of evidence of the, the, the inequities, but also the striving within the peculiar place of San Francisco, the peculiar territory of the West, and then also the peculiar structure of the United States. And this was something that he was just looking for over and over and over again. And it's scenes that would bring to life the structures of the systems of our society, but which also had that verisimilitude, that felt quality, as though you were there. Matthew Siebold is a professor of American Literature at Elmira College in upstate New York, also director or scholar-in-residence, rather, at the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Books That Shaped America podcast. For more information about the series, you can visit our website, cspan.org slash books that shaped America. And remember to follow this podcast so you never miss an episode.